with you. Would you please open up to the book of Esther? And we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 today. If you don't have your Bible with you, we'll share the passage on the screen here in just a moment. Uh, but I want to encourage you every day, to, every Sunday to come with your Bible in hand or make sure your cell phone is charged up and your Bible app is ready to go. Uh, but want you to have a copy of God's Word open and in front of you as we study. Esther chapter 4. One more quick little bit of information before we dive in. Uh, last month, a uh, member of our church, our sweet friend Shirley Rogers, went to be with Jesus, and we're having her memorial service this afternoon at 3 o'clock here at the church. So if you knew Shirley and you want to join us for that, you're welcome to come today, 3 o'clock, here in the sanctuary. Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to spend our time today. The other day I was out driving around doing a few errands, and I passed a race car. Not a race car on a trailer, I mean a race car just driving around the street. It was clearly a race car, the kind of car that is built for the drag strip. You want to get a quick time in your quarter mile. He had giant fat tires on the back of his car. It was painted like a race car. It had decals like a race car. It was a race car. And I thought to myself, how cool is that? It was, you could hear it rumble as it sat at the stoplight. It just looked fast, and it was fast. So I thought, how cool to have a car like that, to drive a car like that. And my second thought was, where are you going to drive a car like that? Are you going to the grocery store in that thing? Are you going to Home Depot? Are you dropping the kids off at school? What are you doing with that car just driving around town on a random day? It doesn't make any sense. It's cool to have that much power in a car, it doesn't make sense to not use that power to its full capacity, and you'll never do that just running errands around the South Shore. Uh, Christians are often like a race car used to run errands. We have so much power given to us by God, but all too often we choose not to use it for its designed purpose. You see, there's no such thing as a powerless Christian. There are only Christians who choose not to use the power God has given them. And this is the scenario that plays out in Esther chapter 4. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know the story. Esther is a Jewish girl who has been chosen as the new queen of Persia. Her adoptive father, Mordecai, uh, has accidentally or intentionally uh, enraged the number two man in the kingdom. He's a bad guy named Haman the Agagite. And Haman has chosen to respond to Mordecai's offense by issuing a decree that all Jewish people in the kingdom of Persia should be destroyed. And so as we get to chapter 4, the decree has been issued. The Jewish people are in a panic, and Esther is called into action. All the action of chapter 4 revolves around Mordecai's efforts to persuade Esther to act on behalf of the Jewish people. And he's ultimately successful because Esther realizes the power that's available to her. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to motivate you to take action using the power that God has made available to us. When I say take action, what do I mean by that? 
I mean, anything that God has called you to do, willed for you to do, clearly commanded you to do, those things that Christian people do, God has given us power to accomplish them. And I want to show you those power sources in Esther chapter 4 today. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. Time out real quick. What all has occurred? Remember chapter 3? The decree has been issued throughout the whole kingdom that all the Jewish people on one particular day are to be destroyed and all of their possessions taken and given to other people. Time in. Back to verse 2. He went only as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction, so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Love the way the action unfolds in this story. Mordecai is grieving visibly, publicly, as are all Jewish people across the kingdom. His grief and demeanor is reported to Esther inside the palace, but she doesn't understand. At the beginning of chapter 4, she is not aware of the edict against the Jewish people. So she sends out clothes to Mordecai because she's concerned about her adoptive dad. And she doesn't understand why he's grieving. 
She wants to understand what's going on, and that's when she learns. They play this game of go-between using Hathak, the servant. Uh, this guy goes back and forth multiple times with messages from Mordecai to Esther and Esther to Mordecai. And finally, Esther understands, and Mordecai pleads with her to act. The way she is convinced to act is by Mordecai highlighting for her sources of power that she has, that she doesn't realize she possesses. There are three of them in this story, and they are the same sources of power that are extended to you by God today. And you need these, and you have these. And let me show them to you. What are the three sources of power Christians have to act in the name of God. The first is this, the power to act comes from God's promises. The power to act comes from God's promises. So verses 14 through the end of the chapter are our main focus uh, for these application points. When Mordecai appeals to Esther to act, he first tells her, look, you're hardly going to be safe. Her first instinct is self-preservation. She's not going to go to the king because she doesn't want to die. Mordecai says, you forget something, you are Jewish, you're going to die. This edict applies to you, to me, to our whole family, to everyone we know. And so he warns her, the same fate is going to fall on you. And then in verse 14, he makes this remarkable statement. He says to her, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. What should we make of that statement? On the surface, it sounds like a threat. It sounds as if Mordecai is telling Esther that if she doesn't act, she will die, and then God's just going to use someone else. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's a threat. I think what we find here is a clear example of Mordecai's knowledge and reliance on God's promises to his people. You see, Mordecai's statement is one of certainty. He knows what's going to happen. Relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people. He doesn't say it might come, or if you don't act, it's going to vaporize. He says relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people. So who is the giver of relief and the great deliverer of the Jewish people? There's only one, and that is the Lord. So Mordecai and Esther would have grown up hearing the stories of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. They would have only known as, of God as the deliverer of his people. They wouldn't have thought about other individual characters, but God alone who has acted through humans to deliver his people. So they would have heard the stories of how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and how they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and how they took possession of the promised land. Mordecai's father, Kish, would have told him what it was like the day Nebuchadnezzar showed up in Jerusalem and took the city captive and then marched Kish and so many other Jewish people across the desert to live in exile in a foreign land. And Mordecai grew up in exile. He's born into exile. He knows all of these things. But he saw with his own eyes the return of the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. When Babylon fell and Persia took control and King Cyrus of Persia issued the decree that the Jews should return and rebuild their city, he was alive for that. He saw his neighbors pack up their stuff and go back home to Jerusalem. So he has heard the stories of God delivering his people and he has seen firsthand God deliver his people. And why is it that over and over again God delivers his people? Well, it started with a promise to Abraham, 
way back in Genesis 12. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 too, he said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God made this promise to make his people great and to bless all people on earth through them. And as of Esther chapter 4, that promise has not yet been fulfilled. It is still in fruition. It's still in the making. So Mordecai must know that if the Jewish people are eradicated, then God's promises fail. However, God's promises never fail. He knows how terrifying the edict is. But he also knows that when God speaks a word, it holds no matter the circumstances. So any action you and I take in the name of God is empowered first and foremost by his promises to us. Now we spoke a little bit about this last week when we discussed focusing our attention on God's revealed will. All too often we're consumed with the things we don't know. And that's what eats up our time in prayer and our time thinking. We don't know something and we want to know that thing. But instead, the story calls us to focus on what we do know, what God has said, what he has revealed to us. And when we focus on what God has said, what he has called us to do, we're able to act in ways that are in line with his will and use the power of his promises to see it come to fruition. The alternative is this. The alternative is that we come to God with outcomes we've just imagined. God, I think this is the way things should be fixed. And we pray that and we put all of our hope and energy on outcomes we have created and we attempt to force God's hand to do what we want him to do. But that's not how God works. In the Bible, God has given us promises and he works in line with those promises always. But you and I don't think that way. That's, that's not how we've been discipled, to search the word for the promise and to anchor ourselves in the promise, to act in the name of God based on the promise. That's not how we've been discipled, but we have to disciple ourselves in this starting now because God's people have always valued God's promises supremely. Let me show you one example from Scripture. In Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all about the all-surpassing value of the Word of God. Over and over in Psalm 119, the writer speaks of how precious God's promises are. And he uses this specific word, the word promise. And I want you to hear all that God's promises make available to us. In Psalm 119, verse 41, salvation comes as a result of God's promise. In verse 50, God's promise is comfort in affliction. In verse 58, God's favor and grace are a result of his promise. In verse 76, God has promised faithful love to his people. In verse 116, God sustains his people by his promise. In verse 133, our steps are made steady through God's promise. In verse 154, God gives us life according to his promise. And then in verse 162, the speaker says this, I rejoice over your promise like one who finds a vast treasure. Do you treasure the promises of God? 
I don't just mean do you assign value to them. I mean, is your treasure of them seen in your reliance on them? God, you've given me a promise. You're going to sustain me. And God, right now, I'm crushed on all sides. I'm going to walk in the power of this promise. God, I need you to keep your promise to me today of grace and love. These are the words of God that empower our every step. This is not hypothetical theology, things that we just leave in a classroom. This is for the day-to-day muck of life. When we need God to act and to help us to move, to get out of bed, to speak the word, to show love, to extend forgiveness, the promises of God empower us for all that he has called us to do. You need that word from God and you have it in his promise. And that's the promise given to Esther as well. So we are empowered to act first by God's promise. But second in this story, the power to act comes from God's providence. The power to act comes from God's providence. When I say providence, what I mean is this. It's all the ways God orders the events of our lives. God is in complete control. God is not experiencing time as we are, just one second at a time. God has planned and put in place every step, every conversation, every event. That is his providence. He does all of that to accomplish his will in our lives and in the world around us. So the second line of verse 14 is perhaps the most well-known line from the entire book of Esther. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai wants Esther to imagine that perhaps she was not made queen just for her own sake. Here the kingdom of Persia is about to liquidate the Jewish people and a Jewish woman just so happens to hold the crown. I mean, what can that be other than the hand of God at work? Now we've talked about the seeming absence of God from this book. Uh, He's never named, he never speaks, he doesn't do a miracle. Uh, So it seems like God is not so present in this story. And that mirrors so much of our own experiences as well. I've often had conversations with people where they've said, I just, I wish God would speak to me like he did to people in the Bible. I wish he would do things like he did back then. There's this sense that God's there, but he's just not really interested in what's going on with me. But the writer of Esther solves this issue for us in a creative way. The the writer of Esther shows us these ways in which God is always active, and the tool the writer uses is coincidences. Throughout the story, these coincidences happen. Things just happen. And the writer is telling us over and over again, though God has not spoken, though he seems hidden, he is not absent, and he is working in all these ways that just seem like dumb luck. And so if a person encounters one or two coincidences, they might just chalk it up to the fact that, you know, sometimes things break in your favor. But in Esther, the sheer number of coincidences and the way in which they become increasingly frequent uh, and incredible as the story progresses leads us to the conclusion that this is not just luck. This is God at work. There is someone behind the scenes uh, putting things in place so they happen in a certain way. So have you noticed 
the coincidences in our story. The story begins with the Persian queen's timely dismissal, which opens the door for Esther's ascent to the throne. And when the search has begun for a no new queen, it just so happens that Esther is brought in for the competition. It just so happens that she wins the favor of the eunuch in charge. It just so happens that Esther finds favor in the eyes of the king. After becoming the queen, it just so happens that Mordecai is working at the king's gate and learns of an assassin assassination plot against the king. It just so happens that his name, Mordecai's name, is recorded in the king's book of memorable deeds and that there is a courtly oversight to reward him properly. When Haman becomes enraged with Mordecai, it just so happens that the lot cast to find the best day for the destruction of the Jews falls almost a year away, giving the Jewish people ample time to prepare for the day. And those coincidences don't stop in chapter 4. In every scene of this story, things just happen over and over and over again. And what are we to make of that? God is at work behind the scenes in distinct and unmistakable ways. So Esther should take action because there is a God who has ordered her life and ordained this moment. This is not going to be a roll of the dice for her. God is clearly at work. So have you ever had an experience where there wasn't a coincidence that you knew just wasn't a coincidence. I mean, sure, some things in life are random. However, it seems more often than not, God indwells the random. He has ordained it. Can I give you one example from my life in which I saw this to be true? Uh, several years ago, we were in our first adoption process from the country of Uganda. It was a very difficult process. And as a result of difficulties with the U.S. Embassy in Uganda, uh, my wife had to live in Uganda for 11 months for the duration of the adoption process. I was home in Kansas with our two biological daughters while Melissa lived in Uganda and worked to push our case forward. Our experience with the U.S. Embassy was profoundly negative. They were mean, uh, they were deceptive, uh, they were nothing you would expect the U.S. Embassy to be. But that was our experience. And so Melissa's main goal, our goal, was we have to get a visa to bring Mercy back to the States. Uh, and so at, towards the end of 11 months, Melissa got a call one day from the embassy. Some things had happened. And they said, we need you to show up at this day, at this time, and we're going to give you the visa for Mercy. It did not create joy in us. Because she had received that call before, she'd even been handed a visa before, and on her way to the airport, the embassy called and said, sorry, that visa's canceled, it was improper. So as Melissa walked into the embassy that day for her appointment, she was filled with uh, despair and worry and fear, no joy, no confidence, and I was on the other side of the planet feeling the same way. She sat in the waiting room and there was another American couple there and they struck up a conversation. My name's Wes, this is my, my wife Mandy, hey my name's Melissa um, and they were in the process of getting visas for their two kids they were adopting as well. Uh, they began to just get to know each other. Where are you from? Wes and Mandy are from Birmingham, Alabama and uh, in Birmingham he said I I'm a youth pastor at a church. And Melissa said, really? We used to live not far from Birmingham. We lived in a town called Pearl, Mississippi. And my husband 
was a youth pastor at this church in Mississippi, in Pearl. And Wes said, what church? And Melissa said, well, it's called Park Place Baptist Church. And Wes said, is Cody Busby your husband? <laughs> and in that waiting room on that day, God gave us a friend. It's just dumb luck, right? Just a coincidence. Things just happen that way. But I don't think so. I, I think it just so happens that in that country, in that city, in that building, in that room, on that day, at that exact, exact time, God placed a friend in order to reassure Melissa and me that he was caring for us. Such a profound act of grace for a singular moment in our lives. She got the visa, they got on a plane, they got home as quick as they could, and it's been good days ever since. Now, you may come into this day feeling like God rarely speaks or rarely acts on your behalf, but what if you use the book of Esther like a pair of glasses to look back on your life? I think we'd be amazed to see all the ways God has acted for us and all the ways he has protected us and all the opportunities he has given us. God has never been absent, never been silent from your life. Esther needs to know that her actions are not left to chance. There's a God who put her in place for this very moment. And you need to know that as well. God has placed you where you are and with whom you are to act for his glory. This is especially important if you are not a follower of Jesus. I wonder if God has just so happened to put people in your life to influence you with the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, you're here today. I don't know how you get here, but I know it's not by chance. God has once again brought you to a place where you hear the invitation to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you see how much God loves you? Do you understand all he has done to capture your heart? He's not waiting on you to get clean, or to make things right. He has already acted for your benefit long before you knew he loved you or long before you knew you needed him. But you're messed up by your sin. And you can never fix that on your own. And that's why Jesus is so vitally important. He's God in the flesh. And he solves your sin problem by taking its penalty on himself. He died in your place for your sin. He's the sinless, perfect, holy God. And he's held accountable for all of your sin. All of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus at the cross. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And that means everything he said is true. He keeps his promises. And he's made a promise to you that if you'll call on his name, if you'll trust in him, he'll save you from your sin. He'll give you eternal and abundant life. You are not here by accident today. There is a God who has ordered your steps so that you would give him your heart. And today you've got that opportunity to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus Christ and make him the Lord of your life. You can do that. God's made a promise that he's going to keep. And you can do that because God has made it this way. His providence is for your salvation. So we have sources of power. We have God's promise. We've got his providence. And then finally, the power to act comes from God's people. 
I apologize for three P's. Alliteration is always an embarrassment to me, but it works today, so live with it. The power to act comes from God's people. In verse 15, Esther responds to Mordecai. Mordecai. He has finally persuaded her. And so she tells him in verse 16, she says, Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I'll go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. I love that the bulk of this chapter is Mordecai trying to get Esther to do what he is commanding her But the chapter ends saying Mordecai goes and does all that Esther commanded him. Brilliant writing. Now, in order for Esther to act, she needs Mordecai to act. She needs him and their faith community to fast on her behalf. Why doesn't she ask him to pray? Why does she ask him to fast? Well, this is conjecture on a lot of people's part, but the activities of fasting and praying often go hand in hand. So to ask for one is to ask for the other. It's assumed that in asking him to fast, she's also asking God's people to pray on her behalf. When Esther envisions confronting the king alone, she falters. When Esther envisions confronting the king with the support of God and her people, she finds the strength she needs. It's impossible to overstate the importance of our faith family in moving us to action. God has given us each other so that we would encourage each other to act for God's glory. The writer of Hebrews knew how important the local church was to the Christian's spiritual strength. And he knew that if embattled Christians remained in isolation, they would suffer profoundly. And so he gave them this encouragement. Let me show you from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 24. The writer of Hebrews tells God's people this. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The early church was concerned that every person needed encouragement to do the work God had prepared for them to do. And so they thought of ways of motivating each other to act. Why wouldn't we do that very same thing? Why wouldn't we invite fellow Christians to pray for us or to encourage us in some creative way to do what God has called us to do? It's hard because people don't always come through. Trust is not easily given, but it is easily broken. And also, we don't want to feel like we're a burden to someone else. There's a sense of weakness that comes with asking someone to help us in a certain situation. It's amazing how easily we are tempted to isolate ourselves. What a sinful choice for God's people to push away God's people. God has put us here for each other, and we have to be for each other. Outside these doors is division and hatred and prejudice of all kinds, but the community of the crucified love each other without concern for any labels or qualifiers. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your economic status, your social influence. We who belong to Christ are one body. And just as Esther's faith community empowered her to act, so also is your church here to encourage you to live the life God has called you to live. Is this your church home? If it's not, 
I want you to make this your church home. I want you to just make a commitment to the Lord. God, you've put me at South Shore Baptist Church. I'm going to join my life to these people and the mission that you've given them to do. We're not a perfect church. We're walking with the Lord in all of our imperfection. But we believe seriously that God has put us here to impact lostness on the South Shore and beyond with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're a central part of that mission. We want you to be a part of this with us. To worship Christ with us week in and week out. To grow in your knowledge of the word. And to put feet to your faith. To see lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make this your church home. Commit to be with us every week. And to grow in the Lord with us as we walk in his word. Now in Esther chapter 4, we've been given three sources of power. We've got God's promises, his providence, and his people. And here's the question, ultimately, what do these empower us to do? We might sit here and think that if we were in a situation like Esther, we'd be willing to take action, even if it means we lose our lives. But I want you to know that these three sources of power are for situations that are less intense than Esther's and more intense than Esther's, if you can believe that. By less intense, I mean this, I mean that we have these sources of power for situations that are much more commonplace. So we should take this power and apply it to just the everyday situations of life. Not all of life is lived with a soap opera tension, right? And thank God for that. And so it's in what we would consider commonplaces where we have God's omnipotence at hand to put into practice. So in our singleness and in our marriages in our parenting, in our conflict resolution, in our need to forgive, in our work ethic, in our hobbies, in our rest, all of these little areas, things that we would consider to be little, we have God's power available to us to employ. And so, for example, if I were wrestling with a situation that was creating worry in me, if my anxiety was high because of some crisis I were facing or some difficulty I were facing, I'm going to look for a promise from God. I've got that promise in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 25, where Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Your God takes care of flowers and birds, and you are much more valuable than them. I've got a promise. I'm going to look for God's providence. Okay, God, you seem absent, but here's what I know. You've been a deliverer here. You've given relief here. You rescued me from the pit here. Here now, I'm going to trust that you're at work and you're moving with me. I've got your promise. I've got your providence. I've got your people. I'm going to call on trusted friends to pray for me and encourage me to push me forward. God gives you power for these situations that are less intense than what Esther faces. But God also gives you power for situations that are far more intense than what Esther faces. You see, it's a big deal that Esther has to go face to face with the king, she has to confront this great evil that hangs over God's people. Haman is the bad guy of all bad guys, but you need to understand this, there is one worse than Haman who is roaming around like a lion seeking people to devour. There is a death that hangs over the heads of all people, and that death is not a threat, it is spiritual fact. 
every day and on every piece of soil on this planet, there is a battle for souls going on. And Jesus Christ has commissioned you to do something about it. He has sent you into the fray, and he has sent you with power, the power of his promises, the power of his providence, the power of his people. But for a task as monumental as this, God has provided you with one more source of power that Esther never knew. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You have God the Holy Spirit in you for this task. The edict has been issued. Destruction is imminent. People every day are dying without the hope of Jesus Christ. And you are the difference maker. Church, we are the difference maker. We're not here for a Sunday show. We're here to rescue souls. And if we don't do it, God's going to do it some other way. But he put us here for this. And he is in you for this very purpose. So speak the gospel this week. There is a spiritual hunger in our world right now. Every Sunday we have people coming into our church visiting. And why? Because the world around us is on fire. And hope comes from one place. It's Jesus Christ. And so when we gather again next Sunday, we should have made ground for the kingdom of God in sharing the gospel and loving people to Jesus Christ. He's called you. He's commissioned you. And he has empowered you for this incredible work. What if you do nothing? Well, you can certainly choose that. I mean, Esther's first response was self-preservation. And so you can choose to just come to church and sing songs and try to do less bad and more good. And all the while, Satan will wreak havoc on the lives of people around you and on you yourself. Or you can take up the full armor of God and make known the mystery of the gospel with all boldness. Whose salvation are you praying for? Whose salvation are you acting for? Who are you drawing to Christ by your words and life? What will you do in this next week in the power of God to rescue souls? Who knows? Maybe you were put here for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that you have made your power available to us. It's the power that sets us free from sin and death. And so I pray first and foremost, as I have coming into this day, that you would open the eyes of faith for the one in here that doesn't know you as their Savior. But you've been working on them. You've been chipping away. You've been drawing them close today. Solidify it. Grip them. Don't let go. Let my sister and my brother this morning say yes to you, that they would know you as their Savior. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith. God, thank you for the power you've given us. We don't feel powerful, and we're not. Weakness defines us every day. And in crisis, in difficulty, that weakness feels so profound. But God, you're not absent, are you? You're with us in every step, every moment. And in your presence is power, infinite power, far above and beyond all we could ever imagine or pray for. And so, Lord, empower us for what lies ahead. 
for the situations we're in this day, for the situations to come. And God, above all, with your power abiding in us, God the Holy Spirit in us, let this be the week that we speak boldly the gospel and see eternities changed for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.